Have you ever wanted to know more about the judge set to preside over your case? Welcome to Beyond the Bench, where San Diego mediators Joanne Rezzo and Jim Picorni get up close and personal with judges from state court as well as federal court. Here are Joanne and Jim. Joanne, just curious, how did you get to where you are now? Well, Jim, after about 25 years as a trial attorney, and I love being a trial attorney, the thrill of being in front of a jury was so fun, but I realized I really, really loved and I was passionate about the mediation process. So about two years ago, I decided to go all in and mediate full-time, and I absolutely love it. What about you, Jim? How'd you get here? Well, I did the same stuff for about 40 years. Uh, Loved trying cases, loved the drama, the theater, loved winning, didn't so much love losing, and finally realized that maybe it would be a good thing to do to try to help people settle cases, and we're both mediators now. Well, Jim and I have had the pleasure of having up-close and personal conversations with San Diego judges, retired and current, from both federal and state court benches. I think we're ready to conduct one right now. What do you think? Let's do it. Joanna Findy happened. We were able to convince Judge Robert Amador to join us in this conversation. I you believe it? believe it. No. Well, we're believe st- it. Believe it. We're looking here at we him. Are. He's here. He can't believe he's here. Good morning, Judge. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing really well this morning. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I mean, you and I have known each other a long time, but there's some things I've never asked you. Like, for example, Where'd you go to high school? Went to high school at Servite High School in Orange County, all boys Catholic school, uh, very similar to Saints down here. That explains a lot. My husband's a crusty grab. Oh, we played them. I'm who, sure you did. Who won? <laughs> I think we did. We had two uh, future NFL players uh, in the game that I went to. I wasn't, I know it was a playoff game when we played them, so. Uh, a lot of the students always went back, big, strong alumni connections. You go back to the games. I used to go to the Servite Modern Day game each year, but since Modern Day has been number one in the world for the last few years, it's too depressing. Well, think about it. Latin is Modern Day means mother of God, mm-hmm. right? Who could be better than that? Now, where was Servite? What community? It was in Anaheim. Okay, so you're an Orange County guy. Orange County guy. Disneyland guy. Disneyland, about five miles away. Wow. I grew up. So Servite and then what? Uh, UC Irvine. Uh, I ended up getting uh, a bio degree and then also a um, criminal justice degree, but they called it social ecology, which was an interesting name. That is name. interesting. Were you planning to be a scientist with a bio degree? Well, with the bio degree, my mother thought I was going to be a um, doctor. Oh. Uh, and then I ran into biochemistry and uh, they said I wasn't. So when you get 23 out of 25 right on the final and they give you a C, you know the curve is designed to destroy your life. Yikes. So, so Yikes. you are an anteater. Zot, zot. Zot. Did you know What's that, Joy? What's an anteater? Is that a, oh, is hello. a Did you go to University of California? Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I did not. Oh, UCSD, Tritons. Go Tritons. Oh, yes. UCI anteaters. Oh, zot. Zot, zot. Okay. Zot. That, that was nice. the, It was from uh, BC, the, the, the comic. The, the cartoon. And so when an anteater would hit something, it would say Zot on it. Kind of like Batman, Bam Pow. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Kind of like that. Okay, so done with UCI, then what? Uh, went to USD. I graduated from uh, UCI on a Saturday. Drove down here with my wife on a Sunday and started the summer program at USD on a Monday. Wow, no break for you. No break for me and a lot of happiness from my wife. <laughs> Did you at least get to take a break after law school? I got some good advice on that point. Someone said, 
take as long as you can before you actually start practicing law. Put it on your visa card. Do whatever you have to do because it's your last big hurrah. Well, it was funny because I worked all through uh, law school. Every Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. I worked at a store called FedMart down here. I remember FedMart. <laughs> yeah, of course. Worked there for eight right and a half, eight and and half years. Mm-hmm. What'd you do? Uh, I started off as a courtesy clerk, a.k.a. box boy. Uh, I ended up doing maintenance. I ended up being a, a food stalker, a warehouseman, driving a forklift, unloading trucks, working in uh, hardware, and then finally in the sporting goods department. Up in Orange County. Up in Orange County, and then three years here in San Diego while I was going to law school. Did you start off as a teenager at FedCo? Uh, at 17 and a half years old at FedMart, it was started there right out of school. It wow. was right down the street from our house. So. That's great. I think that experience mm. of working in your average normal job is huge. It, it helps you relate to people. I think, uh, and I re- actually remember my interview question with the DA's office, which is where I went after. And part of it was, is, you know, what about your background? I never had a legal clerking job, but I clerked for eight and a half years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of clerking. And, but the thing is, is you talk to hundreds of people every day, and in terms of picking a jury and relating to people, that kind of experience is just great. Absolutely. It definitely is. So you went straight through. I went to UCSD, graduated in 1970, didn't really have a clue what I wanted to do. And so for two years, I don't know if you know this, Joanne, I was a beach bum. In Sawana Beach. That's not surprising, though. I, I lived in a house with five guys. My share of the rent was $29 a month, depending upon how many people were crashing at the house. Then one of my roommates got accepted at Hastings, so I decided to go to law school. And that was like 1931. Went, okay, this is very funny. We're going to go right back to our talk here with, yes. with, with Judge Amateur. But the point is there was, a, there was a huge break there, and it was great fun. Oh, my God, a lot of exploring to do. But you went straight. Th- you've been working nonstop since you're 17. Yes, I uh, retired from the DA's office after 30 years and one day, was retired for two days, and then uh, got sworn into the bench. I remember there was an election. There was an election, and because there's two ways to become a judge. One is by election. One is by appointment. And that year, there were three open seats, and I ran for one of them, and I eventually won 59 to 41%. Nice. Landslide. A resounding victory. It was uh, very much so and very satisfying. I remember that well. Now, uh, for those that don't know, difference between appointment and, and uh, being elected, could you have submitted an application to Jenny Commission and gone through all that? Yes, you can. And uh, it's really a, sort of a different process. Um, there, I'm not sure what each governor looks for and uh, your party uh, makes a difference. What you do makes a difference. Uh, and for a while, there were Republican uh, governors who were appointing a lot of prosecutors. Now we've had uh, Democrat governors who are appointing a very wide variety, but not too many prosecutors. And at that time, uh, there wasn't a lot of chances that I was going to get uh, appointed. And it, it's not really have to do with the specific credentials that you have, but it has to do with sort of the mindset, I think, that the governor's office is looking for. What do you think the most important thing, or most important quality for a judge to have is? I think integrity is the most important uh, that you can have. And I think when you have that, it means that you take the job seriously, you work hard, you have a devotion to justice, and you also understand that there's real people in front of you 
that uh, every single person matters, every single case matters. And it seems to me what you just described is the is the mold for a good prosecutor too. I think that is a good mold for a prosecutor. The The mantra in the DA's office since Ed Miller was there was do the right thing. And so the idea is, is are you doing the right thing? And that right thing is sometimes hard choices of what, you know, what kind of case are you going to prosecute? Can you really prosecute it? Do you have the right person? Uh, and, you know, those kind of things are obviously very important. When you become a judge, it is doing the right thing. That same mantra applies. And as a prosecutor, as I recall when I was a baby lawyer, the goal was not necessarily to convict, but to do justice, right? Yes, that was always the uh, the main thing. And, and that's, you know, um, when the DA's office now, I was doing felony readiness department, and you would have a young kid, and maybe they'd have a robbery. Uh, it was some sort of low-level street robbery. And the DA's office still now says, you know what, that's a strike. That's non-reducible. That's going to create a cement ceiling for that person. And if I give them a grand theft and they're able to do well on probation, they still have a life ahead of them. And that's um, sort of looking at the big picture. That's great. But, Tell us a little bit about what you like to do uh, in your free time. <clears throat> well, when I have free time. Yeah. yeah what free time? It doesn't sound like you have much. Uh, I like to read. If you look over there, there's a whole bunch of different uh, books. So I kind of like the Clancy books, or the Vince Flynn books, and you know those kinds of things. So I, that's the most free time I have. But when I am uh, have time, one of the things I uh, – my son always gets mad when I say this. I hate to fish, but I love to catch. And so <laughs> once a year I go fishing in Alaska, and that is just an absolute treat for me. I get away from everything. I'm with a, a group of guys that I've known for a while, including one I tried a murder case with. That's how I met him, and he's sort of the ringleader of everything. Uh, and we're out there, and we are definitely catching fish. And we're out in beautiful uh, area up in Alaska. It's really interesting when the boat stopped one time, and we were waiting for another boat to catch up, and we're surrounded by a group of orcas. And they're just sort of swimming around, and you're looking at them. Wow. And when they left, one of the people got on the radio and said, hey, just remember, we're not at the top of the food chain out here. Yeah. So, But it was amazing. That's great. Salmon, halibut, mainly halibut. Uh, but if uh, we get a limit, then we'll go after salmon. And the salmon isn't running where we go as much as it used to because the hatcheries have been moved, and so you have to have a hatchery to really get some good salmon run. So this is Kenai Peninsula. Is that where you are? Down in Ketchikan. Yeah. So good for you, Joanne. You had two older brothers. I did. Did you ever go fishing? We went fishing all the time. We went. In fact, I just, Jim, you know, I just took my son out deep sea fishing a couple weeks ago. There you go. So I she's, she's got experience. Yeah. But I know you also have a lot of other questions on your mind. I have a few. I was just curious about, maybe you can tell us about someone who had a big impact on your life. I think the biggest person who had an impact on my life was my dad. And I'm really lucky. My dad's 95 years old. And as he says, he's mature, not old. I love it. And uh, my dad uh, grew up in Colorado, moved to East Los Angeles when he was about seven years old. And at 18, he joined the Army and was deployed uh, overseas for about a year. And then when he came home, he worked on an assembly line. 
and was just a very hardworking uh, man who was married to my mom uh, for, I think, 60 years until she passed a couple years ago and instilled in us uh, a work ethic, uh, which was uh, still goes with me. I show up almost every day at 8, and I don't leave until 5, uh, even if I don't have specific things to do. But uh, that's what I get paid for, so I'm usually here until then. What do you think having a parent who worked on an assembly line, a blue-collar type worker as a parent, what impact did that have on you? I, my mother was an assembly line worker, too. So my mom worked at you know a place up in North County where they made parts for military aircraft soldering. Well, it was interesting because that's how he started, and eventually somebody reached down and picked him up, and be, he became into some uh, management-type positions where he ended up being a quality control individual. Nice. Yeah. and But someone gave him a chance. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but him working and him going to work every day uh, and him just providing for the family was just so important. <laughs> and the other thing is, is that uh, he struggled because he sent four boys to Catholic school. And it was very, uh, and it wasn't that much, but you didn't make that much back then. Right. But the other thing is, you know, going to Servite, all boys Catholic school, but it's a college prep school. And the idea was, you're going to college. And that was instilled at an early age. And he hadn't gone to college. My mom hadn't gone to college. And so it was really important. So you were first generation. We're. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So out of that... Um, three out of the four boys ended up becoming uh, lawyers. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, let's yeah. talk about your tours of duty. You became a judge what year? 2013. Ten years ago. Ten years ago. What kind of stuff? Did, well, first of all, you went to judge's school. I went to judge school. Uh, that was a week, but I'd been in my assignment for a couple months. So I started, you know, there's that country western song, you work 20 years, they put you on the night shift. Right. So I was a prosecutor for 30 years, and so I went to family law. And uh, But family law uh, is hard. It is a grind. And there's can be some emotionality to it. Can be? Well, you have to start separating and compartmentalizing things because there is a way to handle family law and it's not to get emotional. It's not to become embroiled. It's not to be part of it. But I did that by assignment for three years and then by choice for an extra year. Now, let's back up to judge's school. Was that at Berkeley? It was in San Francisco. Okay. So judge's school was in San Francisco. What was the most significant thing you took or learned from judges' school that you might not have known before you went there? I'm just I could, I've never been. I'm clueless. Well, I can't tell you because it's part of the secrets of the universe. <laughs> they have a secret sign insignia. There must have been something that you that you got that you thought, "Whoa, I wasn't aware of that before." You know what? I think uh, one of the really important things about that was just how important it was to do the right thing no matter what the consequences. And there are times, especially nowadays, when judges have to make tough decisions and what the public thinks or what the parties think isn't as important as what the law is. And you have to follow the law and you know um, that there can be consequences, but that doesn't even go into the equation. 
So if, if you're delivering bad news to someone because there's winners and there's losers, is that hard to do? Just look them in the eye and, and deliver the news that you know they're not wanting to hear? You know, it can be difficult, and that's part of the compartmentalization of trying to maintain the um, professionalism. But, you know, different judges have different styles, and I am a, have a very personable style. And I think probably judges say the hardest part of doing family law is doing move-away cases, where essentially one parent is going to move, they're going to take the children. And out of the probably 20 I did, there are only two probably that had a significant legal issue. The real issue was the delivering the bad news to somebody who may be making $1,400 a month uh, because of the rules with child support. They're going to be paying a lot of child support, and they're realizing their 10- and 7-year-old who they've been a part of their life has moved across the country, and they're hardly going to see him anymore. And I've had people crying in front of me and such, and it can be emotional, but you have to maintain and try to give them that news, explain to them so they really understand why, and then um, I think showing some compassion is appropriate. Were you able to compartmentalize and kind of leave that emotion at work uh, when you went home at the end of the day? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, it's really funny because one day I've been married for forty-five years, and my wife for you. and my wife said one day says you need to have a little bit more patience when you get home, and I said I used up all my patience at work, <laughs> and she said you better go back and find it, otherwise you're going to be find yourself in family law, and so you have to be reminded once in a while that um, you leave work at at work and you enjoy your home. I have a good friend who's a lawyer, and she every day on the way home, pulls over at a park and spends 30 minutes just decompressing from the day before she goes home to her family. I think that's a great idea. I could work. I, I could do that, but like for a week. You ever worried about getting appealed? I've been appealed several times. Uh, and um, to this day, I have not actually been reversed on an issue. However, I know I'm <laughs> going to be because... <laughs> The AG on a case that I did said um, we submit on some on an area, and it had to do with new gang law and, and something. But the reality is, um, I don't worry about being appealed. If I put in the work for each case and I make the best decision I can, and it's <clears throat> reasoned, uh, then it doesn't matter. So you're not shooting from the hip. You're doing the work. You're you're trying to apply the law to the facts, and if another court says they disagree, they disagree. I think that's the only way you can do the job. I would think so, too. Do you have any advice for young lawyers starting out? We were talking before the program about the fact that some some lawyers just don't get a lot of trial experience. What, what advice do you have for young ones? Well, I think the advice is to work hard and to be a good lawyer. Um, there are a lot of really good organizations out there that people belong to. But one of the things is that you have to learn to be a lawyer. You have to apply your craft. When I started, uh, myself and other individuals um, in the same time frame, I tried 45 misdemeanor jury trials in a year. And one that a, one a week? Um, well, I um, took vacation too, so sometimes oh, yeah. it was two or three. Uh, but um, what happened is that you got handed a file and said, go to this department, your witnesses are in the back, try the case. 
And you found that cases that didn't look very good, sometimes were good. And sometimes cases which looked really good were not very good. And so you start to be able to look through the reports and start understanding also what juries like uh, and how to argue. And you get to learn your style because everyone has a different style of how they do things and what you can do. And so for young lawyers, if they want to be trial lawyers, uh, I think things like in of court or some of the mock trial things can really be helpful. But there are two ways to learn that banging your head against the wall hurts. You can bang your head against the wall or you can watch someone bang their head against the wall. And so I encourage lawyers to go watch what other people are doing and say, hey, this could work for me, or yeah, I don't think that worked, or they may be watching the jury, and the jury gets that sour look on their face, says, yeah, that didn't work so well, uh, but uh, and talk to their uh, fellow lawyers. Really talk about it, and what happens a lot of time is that now everything's on the computer, everyone's clicking their, their fingers, people aren't talking and decompressing about what their trial was, and I can remember as a young lawyer in the DA's office, we talk about what happened and what we did and, and such. And that's important. Back at Great Carry, we used to have what we called litigation lunch. So every Wednesday, all the lawyers would get together for lunch. And we had a set agenda, but one of the things was, you know, new topics, new cases, but also trial results and what's been going on. And you get to hear those war stories. And as a young lawyer, it was just fascinating. You learn so much. I remember one of the lawyers talking about, like, can you bring a motion for this or can you bring a motion for that? And they said, Bring a motion for whatever you want. Just, you know, call it something. So, but another another lawyer during litigation lunch told a very experienced trial attorney said every time before he filed a motion for summary judgment, he pulled out the rudder group and reread the chapter on summary judgment. Things change. So, Bob, you had people surrounding you in the DA's office. You could use them as sounding boards. Joanne, you did too. I was a sole practitioner because nobody would hire me. <laughs> And I understand why. It, and and it, it's different when you're on your own. You need to be part of organizations. You need to have colleagues you can talk to, run ideas past. Otherwise, you're kind of floating around not knowing what's going to happen. But back to your point. So on the misdemeanors, it was basically jump in the deep end. Yes. No prep. Same thing with the city attorneys. They'd show up in the hallway. No, there's your cop. Okay, try your case. What did you think of that, uh, that adventure? Was that good or is that bad? Well... I think new DAs are like new Marines, charge that hill. Uh, and you, when you survive, you realize that you can. Uh, and then you can also learn by your mistakes. Uh, and uh, you take the time to start prepping your witnesses a little bit better. Uh, you go to, go to scenes, and especially if it's a little more serious case, and take a look at it. I started, I tried 24 felony jury trials in a year in 1990 when they had shut down the civil courts because all the backlog of uh, in criminal courts. And it was essentially, it's a boss would come in and say, this is a three count robbery with an ID issue. Today's the last day. You're going to trial and you're assigned. And so... Uh, trial by fire. It definitely was. Yeah. And But if you liked trying cases, it was fun. It was. Fun and, and you get you learn how to work by the seat of your pants, you know. Well, <clears throat> the uh, 
trial is not a set piece battle. The moment you, uh, uh, we had a supervisor who said, when you stand up and say, ready for the people, things start to go wrong because <laughs> now you have to deal with witnesses. You have to uh, make sure that all your instructions are ready. You still have to be prepared. But nowadays, I mean, such things are on a computer. You can knock your jury instructions out, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, you can contact your witnesses at night. I, I always had my phone number, cell phone number was out there for the law enforcement officers. And it was, let me call you. My phone's on. Make sure your phone's on. I'll call you. We can talk about it. So I would prep officers at night for us having to testify. Uh, and it worked out pretty well. Nice. 24 felony trials in a year. That's a lot of work. It was a lot of work. When you were given a case, your supervisor said, here's your your three three count 211 case with a prior, do it. If the case went south, did you have authority to settle it? You would talk to somebody about it. And most of the time, if it was, you went through a deputy who was more experienced than you, who knew what it was about. And that's what a prelim was for. And at that time, you have to remember, there was no Prop 115 hearsay prelims. <laughs> there were real prelims. Witnesses testified. Real people testified. And you got an idea <laughs> what the case was about. And so uh, it was time to try the case. Put your helmet and shoulder pads on and get in the game. For those that don't know, uh, before Proposition 115, a preliminary hearing was really uh, a little mini trial to show that there was sufficient proof that the thing should go forward. You actually called witnesses like a little mini trial. You swore them in and did all that. And we used to call it shake it out of the prelim. And it was a good test so that the for the prosecutor, you could see, well, is this case going to be good or not? For me as a defense lawyer, my client could see, oh, oh, this doesn't look so good. Maybe we should try to settle it, which is why you went to Superior Court and you had a readiness conference. Prop 115 came in and Changed the landscape, didn't it? It did. And it's interesting because the rules were, at the DA's office at the time, is put the witnesses on as often as you can uh, because you do want to see what it's about. I mean, there's certain kinds of cases that if it's an auto theft and the person wakes up in the morning, their car's not there, bringing them in for that isn't you know, that big of a deal. But when you have a bar fight and what happened or what didn't happen and and being able to ask questions regarding people's uh, sobriety uh, or things like that um, are important to sort of evaluate what the case is about. And there wasn't video of everything at the time, where now there's so much video, there's body-worn cameras, there's, uh, it's, it's changed the landscape a bit. And with 115, basically you just put on a cop to say what happened. You, know, you don't have to have witnesses. I talked to this witness, they said this. I talked to a witness, they said this. Certainly much more efficient. Basically, yeah, but as a defense lawyer, you know, there's, there's, everything is hearsay. And that's just the way it was. But, you know, and Prop 115 is still good law. It is. There you go. Now, advice for new lawyers in terms of what, what's a common mistake that you'd see a new lawyer make in any kind of case that you think is correctable? Any thoughts? Well, I'll go to family law first. Okay. And in family law... Uh, what will happen is that they have those pesky things called clients. And so what happens is the client sees things a particular way and wants to put on information. And it may not be relevant. 
to what the issues are, and it sort of sidetracks things. And so the judge is sitting there looking at something, and it's like, can we get to, can we get to this? Or they are so concerned about what that client wants that they're not focusing on the issue before the court. And so I think for uh, the practitioners in that area is focus on what the issue before the court is. That is extremely important because if you don't put that on, then you're not doing your job. Let me play devil's advocate with you. Would you agree with me that, that the fledgling lawyer needs to take into account what their client wants them to get done to? I think absolutely. Um, I go fishing with someone who's a family law practitioner, and he told me one day, he says, I just want the judge to let me ask a few questions that my client really wants. <laughs> and um, that helped me as a judge, actually, to know, oh, that's what they're doing. Uh, and so uh, in criminal law, it's like when a attorney will say, Your Honor, my client who is charged with these terrible offenses where he's a potential life sentence, my client is asking you for an OR release because right. it's like when you're asking me for the OR release, it's like Are you kidding me? Yeah, I guess. So but it is you're maintaining your credibility. And I think uh for new lawyers, um civility is an absolute watchword. Treating other lawyers right, not playing games. Uh, the uh, court, I think, has just added a civility requirement to the oath of office for uh, for lawyers. Yes, when they, when they, they should have done that 150 years ago. Yeah, and you know, and and not looking at things on the short side where. <laughs> There's a wish for a continuance, and you go, well, if I don't continue, I might get a, uh, uh, a dismissal, and it's this or that, where what happens in the future where you sit there and say, you know, I'm supposed to be going to Hawaii, and I would really like a continuance, but it's not maybe a legal continuance. And people have long memories, and playing tit for tat is not a good way for the uh, system to work. And new lawyers, they want to win. They want to maybe catch an advantage. But the reality is it's a long game and you should be civil to each other and not um, play games. We've had veto clients that have said basically like we don't want you to give that continuance or grant that extra 30 days to answer the complaint or something. It's like, you know what? It's a professional courtesy. It's not outcome determinative. We're going to do it. And, and the client control is the balancing part. I mean, you, you do have to exercise some control. As a, as a newer lawyer, I learned that my clients did want to say stuff. They would tug on my sleeve sitting next to me. And I finally, as part of my briefcase, I gave them a pad of paper and a pen. And I would say to whisper over them, okay, look, the hearing's going to happen. I've really got to focus on the witness. You understand that. That's important to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. So if you have questions, write them down. And I guarantee you that once it's our turn, I can say to the judge, Your Honor, may I have a moment with my client? And you, Judge Aminor, and every other judge in the bench would certainly say, of course, Mr. Corny, you've got to recognize that. So in one case in El Cajon, it was a prelim, pretty serious prelim. The client was sitting next to me with his pad of paper. And after many of the questions, he was just right furiously. And I thought, at the corner of my eye, I thought, okay, well, that, it's emotional, but I'm going to look and see what he wrote. when I. And so I said to the judge, Your Honor, may I have a moment with the client? After each witness, he had written down lies, telling lies, which was very helpful. Yeah. 
to know. But he I, got it off his chest. You know, I used to tell clients during the trial, I don't want to see, I don't want to look over and see you furiously writing notes because the jury's watching them. The jury's watching the client. They see what's going on. This was a prelim where there were no, but I agree. Yeah. You, would you agree that jurors, I mean, they're, they're looking at the lawyers and the clients, are they not? There's 12 sets of eyes uh, looking at everybody and they catch everything, even, even though they're told it. not to consider anything but the evidence. But they, they're human beings. They pick it up. Yeah, they yeah. see you. I mean, they see you walking into the courthouse. They see you on the hallway. They might see you driving down Front Street coming to the courthouse. So. Well, what you were talking about before, one of the things that I always do is I'll keep an eye on the, uh, uh, on the clients. And if they're pulling that arm and such, the attorney's trying to give their uh, uh, argument. And then I'll say, counsel, did you want to talk to your client for a moment? And I'll give them that opportunity because I always try to treat the defendants with a lot of respect. As a matter of fact, when I walk into the court before I start a prelim, I'll sit there and go, good morning, Mr. Jones. How are you today? And they're in shock a lot of times because someone is actually treating them nice. And it, I think it makes an impact for them to think, wow, he's treating me like a person. And that that makes them behave better in court. That makes them think that the court is... Uh, really being fair, and I think that's important. Is that appearance, uh, the appearance of fairness as well? What Joanne and I now do full time is we are involved in alternate dispute resolution (ADR) as they call it. We're huge fans of getting cases settled if they can. One of the books that I read as a baby lawyer, I went to the law library and I checked this thing out. It had to do with handling civil cases, and it said words to the effect: uh, "The failure of a case to settle." Uh, is a result of the misevaluation by either the plaintiffs or the defendants as to the worth of the case. And I scratched my head and I thought, that sounds like pretty good language. I still, to this day, 46 years later, think that's true. You agree? I don't handle civil cases, so I don't know. But I know in criminal cases. Okay. Um, one of the things is that there are some cases which have to go to trial. Uh, there is no midpoint. They're, uh, and they're usually the very serious cases. Uh, and so what happens is that the system has built into it incentives for pleading early and such, where, you know, you plead early in a case, uh, what may be a upper term or midterm prison case becomes a low term, or what may be a certain amount of custody time becomes less time because you're accepting responsibility for your actions. But uh, probably 95% of the criminal cases do settle. Uh, and there are some that go to trial and have to go to trial. During your 10 years as a judge, have you participated in settlement conferences? I have not. Okay. Well, let me do go back to that. In my 10 years as a judge, uh, I did felony disposition, which were settlement conferences, for about three years during that time period. And I settled a lot of cases. And I found that there were more than one way to skin a cat, as they say, in that there are were different alternatives to the settlement than maybe the two had thought about. And I think that's important, is what else could happen in regards to this? So could someone plead guilty to a felony, set off the sentencing for a year, and then give them certain things they're supposed to do, and then uh, have it reduced to a misdemeanor at the sentencing hearing? Uh, in, in certain types of situations. So, uh, or 
are, are we going to, instead of sending them to prison, are we going to send them to a long-term uh, lockup facility, not lockup, a long-term rehabilitation facility with a, a large stayed prison term over their head to give them the incentive? But, I mean, especially now, because when I left the DA's office, it was punishment-centric. That was the way the law was. And I showed up four years later, and I went, what's going on? Uh, people who would normally have been sent to prison are getting probation. Uh, and so uh, the concept of what sentencing has gotten mm -hmm. in criminal cases has changed dramatically. And rehabilitation is a significant factor, which is appropriate if the public can be uh, protected as well. What do you think of diversion programs? I think diversion programs for the right people are great. I mean, you keep people out of the system because every time we know that when you give someone a criminal record, it has an impact on their life, their employability, uh, how much they can make. Uh, I talked about a concrete ceiling before. I mean, we all know about that glass ceiling that people have, but a criminal record can be a concrete ceiling and you're never going to get past a certain point. And so, you know, if people have doing the revolving door of prison and such, mm. it is, all right, how much this time? And that's all they're asking for. But if someone's new to the system, making an impact on them and changing the behavior and uh, is really important. You know, NCRC, which is our, we, we both, Jim and I both work for West Coast Resolution Group, which is a division of NCRC, but they have a program that helps juvenile offenders. It's a restorative justice program. Mm -hmm. Because what they found is that so many kids, they get suspended from school for an infraction, and then they're fooling around with friends, and then they get expelled, do something wrong, they get expelled, they get arrested, and they end up, you know, a suspension could end up in a life in prison at the end of the day. So that's a really great program. I've actually gone to lunch with those people because they want to make restorative justice more involved in the criminal uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And it's harder uh, to do that. For adults. For adults. Okay. So, Why is it harder for I, adults, do you think? I think what happens is it takes such a system buy-in. And we're used to that concept with juveniles. Mm -hmm. But with adults, um, a lot of times they're more serious cases. The, there's victimology issues and such. And so I think it's important. But what's interesting is when I talk to them, their concept was we're not trying to minimize what the sentence would be. We're trying to make whole the victim and also get some empathy by the defendant so they actually realize what they've done. That's the key, isn't it, with restorative justice? Okay, we're almost out of time. i got to ask you this. You like the gig? I love being a judge. It is really a good job. I enjoy it. I love coming to work. Uh, and uh, when I left the DA's office, one of the reasons was is I could only do justice one case at a time. Uh, here, I can try to do justice one calendar at a time. How many cases are typically pending in your department? You know, it's a, I'm in a general trial department. And so uh, I wake up in the I'm that instead of the DA sitting outside the uh, waiting for a case, I'm in chambers waiting for a case uh, to get sent to me. So that means you know literally nothing about a case coming in that day? 99% of the time. I have one pre-assigned case right now. So we've already had some motions. I know about that. But as to what I'm going to get today, uh, I'm open for 11 days of trial today. And I anticipate that I'll get a trial this afternoon.
Joanne, sounds like a great job. It does sound like a great job. Though I like what I do, but I respect what you do too. That's great. Judge, thanks. Thank Jim, you so much. This is appreciate a treat. It. Take Thank care. You. Thanks. Great. Be sure to check the next episode of Beyond the Bench for another entertaining and informative judicial conversation, all ad-free. In the meantime, if you would like to learn about alternative dispute resolutions, call us at 619-238-7282.